Greetings to each one of you and welcome. For a title for my sermon this morning, I've chosen this phrase out of the book of 1 John, that your joy may be full. And I am doing a study on the book of 1 John, so I invite you to turn there. I'm attempting to just simply take the message that John has written here in this letter to the churches and to expound upon it and see what, what is he trying to tell us, what is the message that, that God wants us to hear through this. And so I, I see some different topics in here that, that we could draw out, and I'm not trying to go verse by verse and expound on, on everything that he says, but rather looking at some of the main themes and, and drawing probably several messages out of this book. So this morning I'm looking at this phrase in verse 4, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So he gives them the reason why he's writing to them, why he feels this, this need, this burden to write and send this out. Um, before we really get into that, I, I'd like to give a little bit of background to who was the writer here and who was he writing to. And uh, especially, there's not actually not very much here as to who he's writing to, but who was John? Uh, we, there's several Johns that we're familiar with in the, in the scripture, so we need to make sure we're, we understand which John it is. And, and there's a lot of, or a good bit of background on his life as well as some things we know from, from other writers uh, that, that are recorded that are not here in the scriptures. In uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through 20, it tells us that this John is the brother to James, he's the son of Zebedee, and that he was a fisherman by trade until Jesus called him to follow him as a disciple. And when Jesus called him, it says he and his brother James immediately followed Jesus along with Peter and Andrew, who they seem to be perhaps um, partners with in the fishing business. <clears throat> John is, is well known as being part of Jesus' inner circle, you may call it, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, that seem to be uh, closer to Jesus, and, and numerous times it's recorded of, of them being uh, with Jesus when some of the other disciples were excluded. Uh, one is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and this writer here, the Apostle John, were, went with Jesus up on the mountain and, and saw that, of what, what took place there. Jesus was transfigured before them. Another time was in the raising to life of the daughter of Jairus. He was, Jairus was a leader of the synagogue. He came to Jesus wanting healing for his daughter, and she passed away before Jesus got there. Jesus invited Again, Peter, James, and John, I believe it was, invited them into the room with him, and he resurrected this young girl. And also in the Garden of Gethsemane, again, the disciples all went with him there. Some of them stayed at one place, and Peter, James, and John, again, followed Jesus um, further into the garden where Jesus was then praying. So we see there was a closeness there with John and Jesus. The, the Gospel of John is another book that he wrote, and in there he simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
And, and by we, we know that it was John who wrote that because at different times it gives a list of all the disciples except for John, and he simply refers to himself as that disciple whom Jesus loved. So he seemed to be a man who had um, the capacity for close relationships, meaningful relationships. He was very close to Jesus, perhaps even more than any of the other disciples. Not that, that Jesus was discriminating or anything here, but just as we have friends who are close, um, Jesus also did. Several of the maybe negative things that we see about his life, that he was, we can see that he was a sinful person just as we are. He, along with his brother, desired and requested to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. You're probably familiar with that account, where, where they kind of um, snuck up to Jesus, maybe, when the other disciples weren't right there, and made this request, thinking that they could somehow gain a better position if, if they'd get their name in there first. But we know what Jesus told them. He said, that's not like it is in my kingdom. Um, those who, who serve each other are... are um, the words don't come to me right now, but I think that's, that's an account that you're familiar with. Jesus actually um, kind of corrected them here, reprimanded them for wanting that position of um, prominence in his kingdom. Another time it tells us that it tells us something about John in the Gospels is when the Samaritans there did not receive Jesus. As Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem, went through a Samaritan town, and doesn't really tell us what happened, but the Samaritans uh, apparently rejected Jesus. And John and James ask Jesus if they should command fire to come down from heaven and consume these Samaritans for their rejection of Jesus. So it seemed like John was, along with his brother, um, they, they were really um, wanted to take control here and, and um, give a punishment to these people. And Jesus, again, had to correct them. For, for what was um, coming out of their heart and their wrong motives. Uh, we know that John knew the high priest at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. It tells us in one of the Gospels that, that he went in to that trial before the high priest along with Jesus because he knew the high priest. And then he was the one who actually let Peter come in as well. And then we know what happened as, as Peter stood there and three times denied his Christ, his Lord and Savior. Um, it doesn't tell us anymore to what happened to John as he was in there during that trial. John was the one that Jesus asked to, to care for his mother. Jesus hung on the cross about to, to die. He appointed John to be the one who would care for Mary, his mother. And it says that John did that. He was also one of the first ones to see the empty tomb. The Mary and, and the, the ladies who, had, who came there went and saw the empty tomb, then went and told Peter and John, and John, it tells us, outran Peter, and saw the empty tomb and believed. He recognized the resurrection Lord when he, the resurrected Lord when he appeared to them as they had returned to fishing. We, again, um, just quickly reminding you of, of these things that you're probably familiar with, but the disciples had decided to, or at least a group of them, decided to go back to fishing. After Jesus had resurrected, they seemed to be not quite sure where their place was at this time. John was one of them. They returned to fishing. And then Jesus came out to them. Uh, I think he was on the, on the shore and spoke to them, telling them to, to 
uh, I'm not sure now, I hope I'm not getting this mixed up, but anyway, I think it was the time he told them to put the net on the other side, right? Yes, and, and John recognized who Jesus was. It was John there who said um, that, that it's the Lord, and they weren't quite sure. They didn't realize at first who, who it was that was talking to them, but John recognized him as the Lord. John concludes his, his account that he wrote in the Gospel of John of Jesus' life. He concludes it by saying that there are many other things that Jesus did, and if they were all written, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the book. So John definitely had a, a lot of experience with Jesus, a lot that he didn't write down. And, and um, so he, he knew a lot about Jesus' life. He, he seems to be one who is definitely a reliable writer as, as he records um, Jesus' teachings to us. And then as um, in the time of the early church there, after Jesus had ascended back into heaven, John again was a prominent leader among the apostles. Him and Peter, it records a number of things in the book of Acts that him and Peter did together, and Peter often was the one speaking, but John was right there. And, um, and one example is when they healed the, the lame man at the temple gate. That was primarily Peter speaking there, but John was, was right beside him. And so that caused some um, turmoil there with the Jewish leaders that they had healed this man and they ended up arresting Peter and John and putting him, them into prison for a time. John was one of the apostles that was chosen to go to Samaria and lay hands on the believers there as they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. He is referred to by Paul as a pillar in the church in the book of Galatians. And we also know from studying this that John was probably, at the time that he wrote the first epistle here, he was probably an elderly man living in Ephesus and then was later exiled to the island of Patmos from where he received and wrote the book of Revelations. His writing, and it appears that probably his speaking style as well, was more short and to the point, more black and white than, than Peter and Paul in, in their writings. Uh, we don't, like I said earlier, John, or Peter was often the one doing the speaking. John didn't have as many words. And in his epistles, that's obvious as well. They're, they're short letters. There's not a lot of great detail written but he's very concise and to the point and sees things as black and white and doesn't spend a lot of time expounding on the truths like Peter and Paul did. Um, another interesting thing to note is that his epistles don't really have any introduction and it doesn't tell us here who he was writing this to, whereas Peter and Paul would, if you go back and look at their writings, uh, they, they'd spend you know, just the first couple paragraphs there just to sending greetings and, and explaining who they were writing to and all that. So that's a little bit of John's style. It's more short and to the point. <clears throat> Probably these letters were circulated around some of the churches around Ephesus, but it really doesn't tell us um, who it was written to. He was, as I said, an elderly man, a man who was looked up to, had a lot of experience, and this was written near the end of the first century. The churches here were facing increasing pressure from false teachers. This was one of the, the latest books of the Bible to be written. John's epistles here along with, with Revelations, of course. And John was probably the sole remaining of the 12 disciples at this time. 
some of the early church leaders that we refer to sometimes as the apostolic fathers who wrote a lot of, of things about the history of the early church, but things that were not recorded, ultimately recorded in the Bible. Some of those early church leaders were discipled by John and, and knew John personally. And, and if you dig into those writings, you can read about things they say about John. So let's look at this subject of joy, that your joy may be full. He says in verse 4 that he's writing this to them, that their joy may be full. Or we could say complete, when he talks about full joy, a joy that, that's complete. It's not superficial, it's not just something that comes and goes, but it is a full and complete joy. John recorded Interestingly, in, in his gospel, and it's interesting to see those parallels in the writing style and, and the things, the phrases that he uses from, from the gospel of John to the epistles that he wrote, he uses that word joy or records Jesus using that word a number of times in the gospel of John. Uh, so he's, he's telling us what Jesus all said, and it seems like those, those things Jesus said about joy kind of stood out to John. Because he records them while none of the other Gospels do. For example, John 15, 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And in John 16, 20-22, Jesus said, and John recorded it, Most assuredly I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one can take from you. So John took notice of what Jesus said about joy and is now has this desire to pass this on to the coming, uh, those who were, were following Christ. Also, he records in John chapter 17, verse 13, Jesus' prayer there um, near the time of his crucifixion and arrest. Jesus said, now I come to you, and he's, he's speaking to his heavenly Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So we can see that John has this desire to, to pass on what he heard. And he has a desire to see us live with a full or complete joy. This is the joy that Christ has. This is something that the circumstances in the world um, don't affect. We, we see that in, in Jesus' words there where he compares it to a woman in labor giving birth. And as soon as the child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish and the pain for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So as Christians, there's this joy that we don't always feel happy in this world. Our circumstances aren't always joyful. But there's a joy that will not be taken away, a joy that comes with Christ. When we see Jesus, our sorrow will be turned into lasting joy. And also the words that Jesus speaks bring us joy, as he said there in his prayer to his Father, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
But simply the fact that joy is found in Christ seems to be a little too, um, too vague, maybe, to us. As, as, we, as we struggle with, well, in, in, in the circumstances we're in, in the world, we see so much sorrow. We see so much um, difficulty. Sometimes we're persecuted and afflicted. Where is the, and we wonder, where is the joy that's supposed to come from Christ? It just doesn't seem like quite enough to say the joy is found in Christ. If you have Christ, you have joy. Well, John tells us more here in this epistle, and that's what I want to notice this morning. These things I write to you that you may have joy. So what is he writing to us? I want to notice um, three different things in this epistle, and primarily in the first two chapters, but... As we can see, John's style is kind of to, he, he says, has these little nuggets of truth, and then he kind of keeps circling back to, to it and making mention of it again. So we're also going to pull out some verses from, from later in the book as well. But primarily here in the beginning, we're going to notice some of the things he says to us so that our joy may be full. Um, a little deeper, beyond just, well, if you have Christ, you have joy. What does that mean? First of all, I'll read verses 5 through 7 in, in chapter 1. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. I'm sorry, if we say that we have fellowship and walk in darkness. Still reading it wrong. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We walk with God. We find joy when we walk with God. Another way to say this is when we have fellowship with God. Just like when two people go on a walk together. Now, my wife, I know, does this more than some of you ladies as well, maybe, than, than us men, but sometimes they go, two ladies may go on a walk. My wife will go on a walk with a neighbor, and there's more to it than going from point A to point B. There, there, that's really not the purpose. Uh, there's more to it than getting exercise, or that might be part of it as well. But it's the idea of spending time with someone. And I like that, that picture of walking with God when you think about two friends going on a walk together, so that they have time with each other, so they can talk. It's for a relationship. It's to discuss something, or maybe to just simply catch up on each other's lives if you have been apart for a while. To walk with God, <clears throat> to have fellowship with Him. The Christian life was never meant to be lived out by oneself. It was intended that we have fellowship with God, and fellowship with each other. And it's intended that that brings joy into our lives. The early church was an example of this. In Acts 2, verse 42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in breaking of bread and in prayers. They, they wanted to be together. They spent time together as they shared this, this common faith in Christ and the belief that He was their Savior that he had ascended into heaven and gave his spirit to be with them. They shared that together. They wanted to be together. They fellowshiped together. They walked with each other as they walked with God. 
And Paul also, in his letters to the churches, often expresses this longing that he has to be with the believers. With the, the travel restrictions that they had back then compared to what we have now, he put a lot of effort into to actually going out and seeing, those, visiting those churches, and in being with people, the fellowship. He expresses the joy that he finds in being with them and in sharing the same faith and in writing to them. There's joy found in our vertical relationships, our relationships with each other, as well as in our horizontal relationship, and that's our relationship with our Heavenly Father. A love for God produces a love for each other. Looking at a few more verses here in this epistle that, that speak to this, in chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There again we see that vertical and horizontal relationship. But whoever has this world's good, goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In chapter 4, 7 through 12, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that, we, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. That's a word that John likes to use often, is the word love. It's part of that fellowship, part of that being with each other, that fellowship with God, who first of all loves us, and then the love that we can have for each other. And um, verses 19 through 21 in chapter 4 as well, I'd like to read. It says, we love him because he first loved us. Someone says, I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So we see that God initiates this fellowship with us when it says we love him because he first loved us. Without him first choosing to love us, there would be no way that we could return that love to God or to each other. God initiates the fellowship by offering us his love. This is what brings joy. This is what makes our joy complete, that we have a love for God and for each other. John makes it very clear here that our love for each other is evidence of our love for God. Not only can we not love each other without our love for God, but, but the way that we love each other shows where our relationship is at with God. And John, and John uses these strong terms that you know, whoever, if you, if you don't love, um, let me go back to that now. Not sure which verse it is, but something about hating your brother. If, if you don't love him, you hate him. And it's that kind of a contrast that he keeps bringing out. <clears throat> Going back then to chapter 1, the second point I have is that 
for our joy to be complete, we do not argue for our own righteousness. So he talks about this in verses um, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So we could say that he's talking here about joy being found by confessing our sins, and that's right, but I'd like to explain it in a little different way that, that may um, take our minds into a little bit more than we often think of confessing as sins as, as a public or, or maybe even a private, acknowledging a specific sin that we have committed, realizing it's wrong, and that is confession of sin, and that does bring joy. But I think what he's referring to here is, is even more than that. It's the idea of don't, don't argue for your own righteousness. Don't try and say you're not a sinner. Don't try and say that, that you don't need Christ's forgiveness. <clears throat> Stop trying to prove that you are righteous on your own power without the love of God for you. Our human nature is to justify ourselves to see our sin as small compared to others' sins. To do more good, to try to outweigh the sin that we know is in our lives. This is arguing for our own righteousness. There's a joy that comes by confessing not only our specific sins, but acknowledging that we are sinners. And without Christ, without his forgiveness, we are simply helpless. There's nothing that we can do on our own to deal with that sin problem. <clears throat> Don't argue for your own righteousness. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, John gives us a seemingly harsh condemnation of that sin that remains in us. I'd like to read those verses and listen to what he's saying, and then we're going to go back to chapter 2. He says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of Man was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, if you realize that there is sin in your life and you acknowledge that you are not a perfect person and that even though you believe in Jesus, you realize that time and again you fall into sin. These verses can seem rather harsh and make you wonder, well, is there any hope for me? It says if we're born of God, we don't sin. Whoever abides in him doesn't sin. <clears throat> Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. We're unrighteous. Again, John, John is rather stark in the, the contrast that he makes there. 
But turn to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And I'd like to see what John says there and realize that there is indeed hope when we see the sin in our own lives. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I would say that those two verses are the most hopeful and, and the most um, life-giving verses in this epistle. It just gives us a lot of hope, a lot of joy to realize that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate, according to Strong's, is one summoned or called to one's side, especially called to one's aid. Here, it refers, here in John, it refers to Christ, his exaltation at God's right hand, pleading with God the Father for the pardon of our sins. It also, other places in Scripture, this same word refers to the Holy Spirit and is interpreted as the comforter. In fact, that's used... I think, four times in the Gospel of John. The same Greek word as is here, advocate, is interpreted as comforter and referring to the Holy Spirit. It refers to the Holy Spirit destined to take the place of Christ with the apostles after Christ's ascension to the Father, to lead them to a deeper knowledge of the Gospel truth and give the divine strength needed to enable them to undergo trials and persecution on behalf of the divine kingdom. We have this advocate, this one who intercedes for us. And it's interesting that here it refers to Christ, and in the Gospel, John refers to the Holy Spirit. And I think that speaks to the fact that the, the connection between those two, we cannot separate God and his Son and his Spirit completely. They're in harmony with each other. Both Jesus Christ and his Spirit are our advocate with the Father. This gives us hope. And I think back to the book of Romans. I think it's um, chapter 7 and 8, where Paul gives uh, a, a longer explanation of, of this sin that we find in ourselves. If you recall, if you're familiar with that passage, Paul says how that there's, he finds this sin in himself, and there's this in, ongoing struggle within him to do what is right. He, he knows to do what is right, but he, he's finding this sin there, so it's, it's a good example there of Paul's writing style compared to John. So John, or Paul expounds upon that same idea, um, uh, goes a lot deeper into it than John does here. But John does not condemn us. He, he says there is an advocate with the Father. Also notice the word propitiation here. There's a propitiation for our sins. It means by which our sins are covered and remitted, is what that word means. This is also, it says, for the whole world. But in, elsewhere it's made clear that it is only effective for those who put, put their faith in Jesus Christ. He came to, Jesus Christ came to cover, to take away our sins and the sins of the whole world. We must put our faith in him. 
And as I said earlier, I referred to, to Romans 7 and 8, where Paul um, wrestles with that fact that there's this indwelling sin that's obvious in our lives. Even though our attentions are good, we still find that there's sin there. And just like John here then gives us hope, Paul also says there's this hope, there's this joy that comes um, out of this discussion where Paul ends in chapter 7 by saying, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He again turns to that advocate that we have with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's where our joy is. That's where our sins are taken away. We don't need to argue for our own righteousness. Just need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we want to see that there is joy by obeying his commandments. In verses, um, chapter 1, verse 3 to, let's not write, verse 3 to 11. Chapter 2, verse 3 to 11. But now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. and The truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. While our sinful nature wants to make its own rules and rebel against God, complete and full joy is found by submitting ourselves to his commandments. Keeping his commandments results in a stronger and closer relationship, both with God and with others. His love is perfected in us as we obey his commandments. This then results in an increase in fellowship, with which increases our joy. He also tells us later on in the epistle here that his commands are not burdensome. Do they sometimes feel like a burden to you? Do the commands of scripture that Jesus gives us feel like a burden? He says his commands are not burdensome. His commands feel like a burden and we don't want to obey them. That'd be an indication of a lack of fellowship with him. And we can find joy when we choose to obey his commands and walk in fellowship with him. In conclusion here, I'd like for you to notice how that these three things that bring joy, they build on each other. Trusting in Jesus to deal with our sin and obeying him increases our fellowship with him. While we're walking with him or in fellowship with him, we get to know him better. And we get to know what his commandments are. And those commandments become easier to obey. And our joys increase. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus gave himself for us because there was a joy that was set before him. And then he said in his prayer in John 17, But now I come to you, to the Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's possible for us to have that joy, the joy that was set before, that Jesus saw before him. He went through difficult circumstances. There was no joy in those circumstances, but there was a joy that was set before him, and he wants us to have that joy. This joy is not dependent on our circumstances, and John here is speaking from experience. He longed for others to experience the joy that he had experienced, though he once had rebelled against God. In those examples I, I brought to your attention of uh, him and his brother James, um, they weren't following God's plan. They were rebelling against him. He knew what that was. He knew what persecution and trials were. And yet he wants us to see where real joy is. He wants us to find the joy that's only found in Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word that you have revealed to us, for this epistle from John and the truth that is revealed to us here that we can learn from, and I pray that we could walk with you in closer fellowship and as we get to know you, that you reveal to us more and more of who you are, what your commands are, what your will is for our lives, and increase our fellowship with each other, that we may uh, find joy in you, find joy in serving you, no matter what our circumstances show on earth may be. Just thank you for the hope that you give us, that you are our advocate, our comforter, the one who is with us. In Jesus' name, amen.